And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Totally football show. Today at the Emirates, it's Arsenal Man City with three shots on target and an achy face for Nathan Aki. Spurs, meanwhile, with 15 shots against Luton and 15 million screenshots, perhaps, of what the Premier League table now looks like. At Old Trafford, there's Man United showing the bees what a real sting in the tail looks like, and the Amex, where after the buzz gets to the younger McAllister, Klopp wishes he'd left him home alone. All that and more coming up in this Totally Football Show. Sunday evening, the 8th of October. Hello. Uh, Lister, today's totally comes to you with Jay Harris on board. Hi, Jay. Hey, James. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. James Morris popped in. Hi, James. For your kind of full debut. Yeah. On the totally football show. Very excited to have you. Uh, fresh back from West Ham, Newcastle. Shortly should be Daniel Story, and also we'll be hearing from James McNicholas, who was at, at the Emirates for what proved a fairly momentous, certainly finale of a game. On Sunday afternoon between Arsenal and Man City, which we've actually just finished watching. Uh, Janie, early thoughts on that? I mean, for 85 minutes or so, it was quite tense and touchy. And then oh. Martinelli, via Ake's face, pulled off something special. And Arsenal have managed to beat Man City, I think, for the first time in 13 meetings. I think Man City had beaten them 12 times in a row. So a momentous occasion for sure. What does it mean, James? As Jay says, I mean, it, it feels like quite a big moment for Arsenal. You know, you, you don't want to have that kind of hoodoo hanging over you, particularly when all expectations will be the title race is going to come down to Man City and Arsenal again. So psychologically, I think it could be quite a big moment for Arsenal. All right. As I say, we'll be hearing from James, uh, another James very, very shortly. Another, another James. Uh, the scores, though, Saturday, Spurs won 1-0 at Luton. The first time they didn't get at least two goals in a game, but it was enough to take them top of the table. Elsewhere, the other sides in the bottom four were all defeated too. Sheffield United went down 3-1 at Fulham. Burnley lost 4-1 against Chelsea. Bournemouth got beaten 3-0 at Everton. While at Old Trafford, Brentford almost won their first game at Man United since 1937, but somehow lost 2-1. Palace Forest was 0-0. Sunday... All three 2 o'clock games finished level. Newcastle got pegged back by West Ham uh, to a 2-2 draw. Brighton-Liverpool finished 2-2 as well. And it was all square at 1-1 in the West Midlands derby between Wolves and Villa. Obviously, we're going to start with Arsenal-Man City. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listed forward towards Tommy Asu and Kai Havertz and Martinelli! Arsenal 1, Man City 0 on Sunday the 8th of October. Watching the game at the Emirates. And speaking to us now, James McNicholas of The Athletic. James, uh, you're outside the Emirates right now. I am indeed. I've seen quite an unusual sight, which is fans queuing to buy a programme after the game. 
Uh, obviously, Arsenal have waited a long time to beat Manchester City, and I think the supporters who are in attendance today are aware that they uh, witnessed something quite unique and a little bit special, so taking a memento away from the game. Yeah, who knows when there'll be another one like it. It has been 12 victories in a row uh, for City with Arsenal. What made the difference this time? It's a great question. I thought it was a really intriguing game. I mean, you know, whenever Pep and Arteta come up against each other, the phrase chess match is kind of bandied around. I thought it was really apt today, though, because intriguingly, this was a game where neither side desperately had to win. If you think about these encounters last season, City desperately needed the points and Pep talked them up as finals. My feeling today was you had two, uh, two teams here who probably would have been pretty content with a draw. And I think it led to quite a, a cautious game, a game that didn't have a, a huge deal of chances for either side in it, that ultimately both teams seem to accept might be decided by a mistake or a bit of luck. Arsenal, of course, got that luck with the Gabriel Martinelli deflected goal right at the end. But in terms of what's changed, I don't know if Arsenal could quite have played that game of chess in the past. And I think they've become a very, very strong off-the-ball team, which meant that in periods where City did have possession, they weren't really able to convert that into chances. You know, David Raya was untroubled, barely had to make a save. The same is true at the other end. As I say, it was quite a, a staid game, if, if a, still a tense game, but one where Arsenal just got that break right at the end. All right. It wasn't staid after it went in off Aki's face, though, was it? No. Absolutely not. I mean, where, no, where were you watching, James? I was watching from the North Bank. Uh, and let me tell you, they certainly enjoyed that particular ricochet off Nathan Ake's face. Um, it, it was pretty wild in there. And then right until full time. I, I don't think you can sort of uh, overstate what this means to Arsenal. Of course, you know, it's just one game. But as we said, it has been such a long wait for them to beat Manchester City and I think consequently this will feel for a lot of Arsenal fans as a moment where they've kind of arrived you know I, I think there'll be a lot of optimism off the back of this about what they could achieve potentially this season Brilliant Extraordinary though this comes just days after you lost to one of the worst teams in Ligue 1 <laughs> Yes a fair point a fair point but a trade uh, many Arsenal fans I'm sure would take um, but yes it's an interesting one I mean that you know the the game in France didn't go Arsenal's way and that too was decided by quite narrow margins. It's so often the case, you know, the finishing that day from Lens was exceptional. Um, Arsenal wasn't so, so much an exceptional finish, but a bit of a lucky one, uh, but they'll, they'll certainly take it. Brilliant. Enjoy the celebrations, James. Thank you so much for joining us. I will do. Take care. All the best. Our man at the Emirates, James McNicholas. Wow. What an afternoon for Manchester City. Uh, joining us now on the line, actually, is Daniel Storey. He's fresh back from West Ham, Newcastle. Hey, Daniel. Hey, big game of the day, yeah. Yeah, Pleased yeah. Well, no, I mean, it, it was a pretty interesting match. I'm sure we'll hear about it later on. But let me quickly get, what was your take on the Arsenal-Man City game? I, I mean, a draw would have been a fair result. It was a, a poor game. It reminded me of that Liverpool-Manchester City game a few years ago when Riyad Mahrez skied the penalty, kind of late chance to win it, and Arsenal got their chance and by hook or by deflection took it. Um, I think a draw would have been fair, but I think City got punished for how they played the game. They seemed pretty happy to see out a draw. Poor Erling Haaland, if we can say such a thing, looked suddenly pretty starved of service, and because he's missing chances when he gets them, suddenly kind of looks like a bit of a spare part, which is not something I ever thought I'd say. So, yeah, massive, massive for Arsenal, obviously. 
I think really good for the Premier League. I think if City had won that 1-0 or 2-0, then we'd probably wrap up the Premier League title race. We can't do that now. That's a very good thing. Uh, and a kind of resurgent North London, I think, is something to be, yeah, something to be really happy about. Erling Haaland, one goal in five now. Man City with just four shots, one on target, which is the four shots in the whole game, on or off target, is the lowest that they've ever had in a Premier League match under Pep Guardiola. And of course, the, the other key stat uh, beyond the score is the fact that that was their third game with Rodri suspended and their third defeat. Why is he so impossible for Pep to substitute? I mean, I remember seeing a graphic towards the end of last season that I think he's got the the highest success rate for passes under pressure. So he's just so good at taking the ball when he's got three or four players around him and, and progressing it. He obviously allows Silva, Foden, whoever it is to play higher up the pitch. I mean, you had this strange scenario where I think Bernardo Silva was kind of playing in a bit of a defensive midfield holding role today. And there's, I know James referred to it as a bit of a chess match and it does seem that Pep and Mikel, whenever they come up against each other, always trying to do these, these really weird, clever things. But I remember, I think it was January 2022, when Arsenal came very close to beating Man City and Rodri scored in the, the 93rd minute of that game. Arsenal was so good and they actually outplayed Man City that day. Gabriel got sent off and then the whole complexion of the game changed. Whereas Arsenal were just the complete opposite today. They just had to be very defensive. Um, obviously started with Jorginho and Declan Rice to just fortify things. And after a very shaky 15 or so 20 minutes, particularly for David Rea, they just managed to really limit the chances Manchester City were creating. I think it's the lowest XG they've ever recorded under Pep Guardiola what, in the Premier League. What was the numbers? Um, I think it's 0.55 off the, the top of my head, um, which just tells you how good... Um, Arsenal were okay. defensively and remember when Arsenal lost to City towards the end of last season there was no Saliba it was Rob Holding who was given the task of of looking after Haaland and that didn't go down too well and I think Saliba was was brilliant today one of one of Arsenal's best performers probably alongside Declan Rice okay what happens now though because Rodri comes back in was this just while the, the cat is away the, the mice will play their fixtures their fixtures do get a bit more tricky from here here when when the Premier League returns yeah, but we've seen them swat away opponents like that before. I mean, Rodri is, is the most important player in the Premier League for any team, I think. Particularly, I mean, we sat here, I think, a fortnight ago and kind of wondered or said, concluded that this was Calvin Phillips' Manchester City career on the line. If he could step in and perform that role to maybe sort of 70-80% of Rodri's work, then his signing would have been valid because Rodri doesn't miss very, very many games. And when he, he does, somebody does need to step in. And I think we can now say that that's over. Uh, he, he hasn't been trusted to start. He hasn't been trusted to try and play that role. He, he is surely, given that Manchester City bought him as a backup to Rodri, is surely the best player at playing those passes under pressure, particularly if John Stones isn't going to start. So I think, yeah, that, that's the, my ultimate conclusion. I think Rice versus no Rodri was basically the game, albeit a very, very even one. Mm. Kovacic, the man that Pet opted to put in in place of Rodri, uh, pretty lucky to see out the 90 on the field. That that kind of, should he have got a second yellow controversy, a little bit lost, of course, in, in the goal, which saw four subs combining. Yeah, and um, what could turn out to be quite a big moment for, for Kai Havertz. I know he had the, uh, the penalty, I think it was against Bournemouth last week, and there was a big thing made about that. But I think coming on... Um, in such a tense game and coming up with the assist and getting into a dangerous position anyways will be a huge moment for him. And yeah, credit to Arteta for kind of rolling the dice and 
using Tomiyasu as some sort of um, <laughs> centre forward because it, it it worked a treat. So being bold enough to to kind of take that risk has paid off. Brilliant. All right, paid off for Arsenal, paid off for Spurs as well. A James Moore because. Tottenham currently edging the Gunners at the top of the table. Yeah, on on goals scored, which, uh, as we know, is the the true metric to to split two teams. Um, I found I found it quite funny that people were suggesting Spurs would have lost this game last season. Obviously, they went down to ten men at half time, having really dominated the first half. So this was the early kickoff. So I should just yeah, say sorry. early kickoff on the Saturday. They go to Luton. And as you say, there's the red card and is this going to make a difference? But it didn't because? Because Spurs found a way to score a goal that they probably wouldn't have scored last season because they have a player like James Madison in the team now. That's the thing they've lacked for the last three or four seasons, maybe even slightly longer. A real creative number 10 that will create opportunities both from open play and from set pieces. And since uh, Christian Eriksen and Dali Ali both left or were on the wane. They've really struggled for that kind of creativity. It's all been basically playing on the counter-attack under Mourinho and then under Conte. So he's made such a huge difference. And, you know, the Spurs completely dominated that first half. I think they had like some 85 to 86% possession. XG was kind of way off the scale. Well, Luton's was (laughs) 0.09, which might still be bigger than Man City's at the Emirates. Yeah, but still... (laughs) I found it funny that people were saying that Spurs would have lost this game last season because it was probably the most Conte Spurs performance we've seen so far this season. Mm. Obviously, like big restrictions in losing Basuma just before half time to that red card. Which, by the way, I, I think uh, it's so rare that you see a player sent off for a second, uh, a second yellow card for a dive. Right. It's actually quite nice to see that happen. Right. And particularly with everything that's happened uh, around Spurs in the last seven days, I think the, the idea of Spurs getting away with one like that. That's probably for the best. Madison's impact has been huge, but whoever is doing the transfer business at, at Spurs, and it clearly isn't Paratigi because he's banned. Of course. Um, has, has had an absolute blinder over the summer. Everybody who's come in from Boscoglu down, Madison, I mean, you helped me out with the other people. Mickey van der Ven's yeah, been great. Van der Ven. uh, Vicario's been fantastic. Yeah. And then the players that they signed last summer, you know, I think last summer it felt like Spurs had had a good window, but then quite quickly it started to seem like the pieces didn't quite fit in place and hmm. it didn't work out for Richarlison. It wasn't working out at Basuma. The difference now is that one or two of those pieces of the puzzle didn't look like they quite fitted before. Now, you know, now you can see it. I mean, Basuma is obviously an absolutely integral member of that team. Pap as well alongside him in midfield, who was there for all of last season, but Conte didn't really use him. Romero was way off the level last season he was a bit of a mess really you know getting himself in all kind of all kind of bother with rash challenges and dreadful mistakes all over the pitch but this season has looked far more like a world cup winning center back than he did before and it just yeah it, it feels like you know, and vicario that you mentioned as well it just feels like the whole thing uh, there's an alignment of the, the tactical plan the recruitment plan and kind of the energy that Postecoglou is bringing, it's like, it's all aligned for the first time in like kind of four or five years. What, what, what does that mean? I, the energy. I wonder. Yeah. I mean, Spurs are the only unbeaten Premier League side in all competitions this season. They're off to their best league start since 1960-61. I'm not sure about that statistic because it, include, oh, really? it includes losing a penalty shootout in the League Cup. 
Ah, I mean, I'd, okay, it's quite yeah. generous. The unbeaten stat. Yeah. Well, let's focus on the other one, the one that where they've gone, what, 60 years or so, more, <laughs> more than 60 years without ever having a, a start this good to the season. And the last time they did, they went and won the league at the end of it. When you look at the league table, and Daniel's going to wave the calendar in the air and point out that we're only at the beginning of October, but it says Spurs first place with 20 points, Arsenal with 20 points, Man City then in third place with 18. What, what does that mean? What I think is really interesting is you know, last season Spurs took 23 points in their first 10 games, I think. And at that point, there were still murmurs of discontent, which is unthinkable given where Spurs were and what you've said about how long it is since they'd had such a start this season. But the difference between that and now, and they, they're on 20 points from eight games now, and it's not un, you know it's not unfathomable, but they might end on 23 from 10, is night and day in terms of the mood. It's that mood that kind of bring is kind of flowing through everything. And, you know, for the next five games are in London, they haven't lost in London, I think, since January. Or maybe they've lost once in London since January. So I think there's an element sometimes when when everything feels quite good vibes to only focus on the good vibes. And James is right. It's, it's way more than that. It's very nice for Postacoglu. And Postacoglu would be loving the fact that everyone's just saying, oh, it's because everyone's enjoying themselves. And they are. But there's also a tactical plan, which is really working because it's getting the best out of Madison. It's bringing through Romero and Van der Ven as a partnership. It's making Basuma feel like a star. He's got options out wide, even when Brennan Johnson's injured. He's still got options. And Mana Solomon's out. He's still got options out wide. And Sun looks like he's enjoying himself more than he has for two years. So it is more than good vibes. But my God, those good vibes help. Because now when they go behind, they think, well, we show him win them behind against Sheffield United. When they're struggling to break down a team, they think, well, we struggled to break down Liverpool with nine men and eventually got it done. We did the same against Luton with ten men. They're winning in all kinds of ways. And that has to go beyond just vibes. Mm. Should Spurs fans have been queuing for the programme at Kenilworth Road? <laughs> yeah, I think they probably should, yeah. Yeah, magnificent. Well, October, long way to go. But that means Spurs are going to be spending the international break on top of the table, which means that previously they'd only spent 72 days on top of the Premier League table, as we were detailing on a Thursday, about half the amount that Norwich City have spent on top of the division. But they'll be adding another 14 days there. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, they're really going to chip away at, least. at that late, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. The only thing I do think is that, and this is very much kind of pouring cold water on something that is undeserved, but... The one thing about overachieving like this in the early season, if the Spurs finish fourth this season, it has been a magnificent season. It has been like a manner from heaven season for a new manager in a new league, a club that looked really broken last season. That's still the case. Like Spurs will suffer. You can hear Ange in every kind of press conference saying, look, there will be a dip at some point. We're not mm. going to win every game. We're not going to remain unbeaten right through. And reacting to that is important, but also kind of, the supporters reacting to that in a really sensible way is going to be huge because there are fans of other clubs who will be waiting as soon as Spurs lose a game that they should win. Everyone will say, well, here we go, here we go again. Right. It doesn't have to be like that anymore. It can be a new Spurs. Right. It's not like they've got a reputation for throwing things away or anything, Daniel. Uh, Ange himself was quite specific about the idea that the fans should go out and talk up their, their championship chances. Does anyone feel boldened to suggest it could be that kind of a year? I mean... I would say that that uh, Arsenal-Manchester City game was one of the lowest quality matches between the, the, the best two teams in, in the Premier League I've seen for a decent number of years. But it, yeah, even then, I don't think Spurs... I, I think their squad is so thin. When does Spurs play Man City, James? Uh, in December. Okay. Towards halfway. I mean, Spurs have a great record against Manchester City. That's not necessarily one they'd worry about. I mean, I think they won eight 
of the games between the two Arsenal one in 2015 and uh, today. So yeah, that that wouldn't necessarily be the one that would hold the most fear for them, really. Mm. Yeah, I think ones like Luton away are probably more of a problem for Spurs, to be honest. Oh, how nice. Okay, excellent. Well, that was the final game of this Premier League weekend and the earliest one as well. In a moment or two, we'll get on to the Sunday 2pms, starting off with Daniel's trip to the London Stadium. Hi everyone, David Ornstein here, and I want to tell you about The Athletic's new bite-sized podcast, The Daily Football Briefing. If you're one of those people who are just too busy for a regular-length podcast in the morning, this is right up your street. In just over 10 minutes, we'll bring you bang up to date with the biggest stories in football, all before you've finished your first coffee of the day. It'll be Matt Slater on a club's ongoing takeover saga, our club experts reflecting on big overnight matches, and let's be honest, me explaining those transfer stories that just won't go away. That's the Daily Football Briefing, every weekday morning, available wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Also on the move here for West Ham. Kudos takes the touch. Oh, oh and finds a fabulous finish. A stunning strike from Mohamed Kudos. Daniel, while some people watching Brighton and their 2-2 draw with Liverpool Sunday afternoon, or perhaps going along to see Wolves and Aston Villa and their 1-1 draw, you were in East London to see West Ham Newcastle. What can you tell us? Yeah, I, I feared it. it. When I was walking to the game, it kind of had this emphatic, sleepy one-all energy, uh, both teams playing in Europe in midweek. But it was really fun. It was spicy. Uh, West Ham have got a problem uh, with being really passive at the start of second half this season. I think if you took a first half table, which I know doesn't exist, but bear with me. If you took a first half table, they'd be top of the Premier League. Um, they've taken more first half, you know, they've performed better in first half than any other team in the league. But second half, they just seem to come out and not expect their opponents to react to what's happened in the first half. They did it in midweek. I was in Freiburg and they conceded in the 49th minute there. They looked really passive, had enough time to get back into the game at that point because they only conceded once. Uh, and won it eventually, fine. Here, they they should have paid the price. They should have lost the game because they just switched off so much at the start of the second half. Alexander Idak is, is a kind of incredible multifunctional forward. He's, his movement in the box is far better than we give it credit for because he's also capable of playing out wide. But West Ham are just architects of their own downfall. I'm really glad that, that, that they got back into the game because I hope this means that Mohamed Kudus might get starts in the Premier League now. He's a... He's such a talent. And I know it's hard to get him and Pakitar and Jared Bowen in the same team with a striker, but he's so, so talented. And his goal was brilliant, really well taken outside the box, left foot kind of teed himself up and then drilled it past Nick Pope, who also went missing for the first goal. But yeah, it was really fun. Um, 
West Ham were were good at the start and good at the end and bad in the middle, which has basically been their season. Okay. Newcastle coming off that extraordinary midweek in which they absolutely tonked Paris Saint-Germain at St James's Park. And the following night, as you mentioned, West Ham made it 17 games without defeat in Europe, consecutive games without defeat, which is a new English record. What was it like there in Freiburg? Yeah, it was really good. I'm going to do a a kind of long read on Freiburg. They're a really interesting club anyway. Um, They're the kind of case for long-termism in the European top five leagues. Had the same manager since 2011, Christian Strike. So yeah, they're they're really fun. I think they'll easily qualify from that group as well because it's pretty low on quality and Piarcas aren't up to much. But yeah, West Ham in Europe is... They've won 16 of those games as well. The only one they didn't win was the 1-1 away draw at Genk in the knockouts of of last season. And you can just see there's a different belief when they they play in Europe. The only shame for me is that there were no away fans. It's really interesting that at the Conference League final, a player was struck with a projectile, I think a vape from the crowd from a a West Ham fan, which means they have a full stadium ban for this away game. And Freiburg fans were were protesting that and saying, look, for a few idiots, don't ban us. We want fan culture. We want West Ham fans over here. We want them in the city. We want them enjoying themselves. We want them at our game to create an atmosphere. And it's, it's a shame that they're not here. So that kind of typical German kind of fan unity was was there on Thursday night and on Tuesday night. I was at Union Berlin and they had this massive tifo about UEFA stadium regulations mm. as well. So yeah, yeah, and they literally had a banner saying UEFA stadium regulations. It was pretty specific stuff as they went down to. I think at the time the sixth defeat in a row. They've now added a a seventh Union, but that that's something we'll be talking about with Raphael Honigstein in Tuesday's Totally Football Show. So West Ham and Newcastle seventh and eighth still separated by a point in the table after that. Liverpool held by Brighton at the same time. James, you were watching this game. Yes. Uh, Yeah, this really wasn't what I expected from Liverpool. After all of the talk, and I know they had a game on Thursday night, after all of the talk of uh, the injustices of of Tottenham away last weekend, I really do think they'd come flying out of the traps and play with like proper sort of passion and aggression, like old-fashioned Jurgen Klopp football. And they were... I mean, they just weren't really in the game in the first sort of 20, 25 minutes. And Brighton looked incredibly good. And it took them until pretty much the very end of the first half to kind of find their rhythm. And then before you knew it, you know, Salah scored twice, including a penalty. And they're ahead. And obviously they ended up drawing the game. But I, I, yeah, I was very surprised that they weren't a bit more like their old selves. It, I mean, it's probably actually a worse performance than... <laughs> they just certainly defended worse than they did with nine men last weekend. Hmm. Uh, they're defensive choices leading to Brighton's opening goal the Brighton yeah. press I guess having a hand in that as well when I mean uh, a communication error costing Liverpool two weekends in a row you could say yeah, you could <laughs> say indeed both teams had chances to win it late on uh, Gravenberg and Jean Pedro uh, did either team deserve to take the three points possibly not I mean I say it's a, it was a fairly even game I mean I Brighton have conceded so many goals this season. Uh, they've they've kind of it's kind of been a bit feast or famine, isn't it? They've they've had some really good results, but then the next week just looked a bit of a mess at the back. Mm. So I mean, I mean, I'm sure they're happier with that than Liverpool. But I, yeah, like I say, I was just so surprised that Liverpool didn't come back with something a bit more punchy after that. Okay, Brighton, who had on Thursday night a two-two draw away in. Marseille, which they looked uh, all over the place in the first half and, and came back valiantly. That opening goal, Van Dijk attempting to pass out to McAllister, who then gets robbed by... Who robs him? A Dingra. Oh, it was a Dingra, yeah. who then scores? Yeah. Yeah, nice. 
And Daniel, you were on this show last season saying that he was going to be the next Brighton superstar and, and how right you prove. He, yeah, <laughs> knocks that one up for once. Um, yeah, he, he is he's almost like the perfect personification of um, a youth scouting in 2023. He came from through the Right to Dream Academy, which is uh, FC Norgeland have this relationship with uh, African academies, uh, mainly in Ghana, but also in, in Cote d'Ivoire as well. And he came through that. He went to Norgeland. He played ridiculously young. He played sort of 40, I think, league games and scored a load of goals for Norgeland and then gets the move to Brighton, uh, which is uh, the next model club. He's then loaned out to their one of their satellite clubs, which is very 2023. And, and yeah, now he's back in the Premier League and they've done what they did with Matoma, which is going to hold him back a little bit, give him burst. They're doing that with Evan Ferguson as well. They manage their players right. But he is a heck of a talent. He's still only 21 and has played a couple of times for Ivory Coast at senior level. But yeah, he is, I think he is the business. Quick quick uh, fact. Do you know who else came through Norgesland? Everybody. Matthias Jensen at Brentford. That's what you're going to yeah. say. No, it's not. I was going to say kudos before yeah, he was at really? Ajax. Yeah. yeah. Brighton, who performed much the same function within the Premier League's ecosystem, uh, thus remain in sixth spot. Uh, Liverpool are fourth. The team in between them are Aston Villa, who had that 1-1 draw on Sunday afternoon with Wolves, the West Midlands derby. Daniel, you will no doubt write some incredibly telling point about this <laughs> I, in the I do eye. have a fun point. Yeah, a really fun but you didn't see it. How are you going to do that? Well, because I saw that Huang He Chan scored again. Right. And do you remember last year when Wolves strikers could never score goals? Mm. Um, well, now they have the Premier League's most efficient striker. Of the 127 players to take five or more shots in the Premier League, he has the best conversion rate. You know, five goals in 12 shots, uh, which feels like a kind of sign of the apocalypse, I suppose, that Wolves have found this hyper-efficient striker. But yeah... Um, between him and and Min Sun, who's third on that list, um, yeah, South Korea are good to go. Absolutely, I'll look that one up in Revelations, uh, Daniel. <laughs> they also have one of the most scarily speedy players in, in the Premier League in, in Neto, who once again turned on the afterburners to, to set up Huangford with the the opening goal, and then Villa Villa brought them back with who got the oh Pau Torres, Pau Torres that's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, very good. Oh, very shortly, we'll be hearing what Jay got up to on Saturday. And it was a lot of fun. So uh, look forward to that in a moment or two. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We're sponsored for this episode of the Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson, the Sports Podcast Awards Soccer Podcast of the Year. The Athletic Women's Football Podcast is now known as Full-Time Europe uh, because The Athletic have a women's football podcast in the state called Full-Time. Anyway, this one's Full-Time Europe and the new one's going to be out on Monday, but the same podcast. Uh, They'll be talking about all sorts of things, including probably the most carded game in WSL ever, Man City-Chelsea. Uh, yes, that's out on Monday. On Tuesday, you can tune into the Totally Football Show's European edition. Lots to discuss as ever with Alvaro, James, Julian and Rafa. More goals for Jude Bellingham too this time in Real Madrid's 4-0 win over Osasuna. To put that in perspective, he's currently matching Cristiano Ronaldo's goal output at Real, which is, I mean... Remarkable. Yeah, but then we said the same thing about the other fella. Uh, we'll be hearing from Rafa about the Bundesliga striker who's on 13 goals in the first seven games and is not called Harry Kane. Uh, oh, we'll also be hearing about Paul Pogba's B sample and lead Metro ambassador writing in about yesterday's or Saturday's Milan Genoa match. I'm sure we're going to be discussing that. Both keepers sent off. Did you see this? I have seen it, yeah. Remarkable. Both keepers sent off after Mainian. Completely Schumacher'd uh, one hapless general. Well, two, actually. Two, yeah. Two, yeah. Two players. <laughs> Need the guy in the face oh. and was surprised that he got sent off. That's a that's a first. So Milan, who had a one-goal lead at this point, stick uh, Olivier Giroud between the posts uh, with pretty brilliant consequences. Yeah, he performed with honour, I think. And they... He did his best to uh, kind of Bert Troutman himself on the striker, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Diving yeah. out. I think that's as good a, an intervention as you can expect from an outfield player in goal, I think. Yeah. yeah. And thanks to his brave sortie, they go clear on top of the league in Italy. They are two points clear of neighbours Inter and four of Juventus, whom they will be facing when Serie A returns after the international break. So that's very exciting. Uh, let's get back to the Premier League, though. And Jay, on Saturday, what did you do? Um Travelled up to Old Trafford to watch Brentford take on Manchester United. Yeah. And for 93 minutes, yeah. had a good time. And yeah. then four minutes. Oh, no, did you though? I bet you were day. nervous as heck, weren't you? When the ball went up for six minutes. Brentford were 1-0 up. Mm. Um, I think there were a couple of times in the second half that there'll be a lot of scrutiny again on Onana for the mistake he makes for Jensen's goal. But he did make a couple of really good saves in the second half. And there's okay. one from a Christian Norgard header from a corner in particular. And when Brentford just couldn't find that second goal and just, you know, the history of Manchester United just having this reputation for last-minute goals, you did feel quite nervous and Brentford were just getting pushed back deeper and deeper and deeper, basically. So, yeah, I was a little bit worried, but I I do have to admit when McTominay came on, I thought Amrabat had been playing quite well. So I was like, oh, I'm actually kind of glad they've taken Amrabat off and that backfired with catastrophic consequences. Right. But a man had been watching a Beckham documentary the night before, channeled the spirit of 99, etc. Yeah. and so on. Yeah. And uh, the funny thing about those two goals from McTominay is um, he was asked after the game, 
you know, what did Eric Ten Hag tell you um, when he was bringing you on as a substitute? And um, at Tomini said, I couldn't hear him. So it definitely <laughs> felt a little bit like uh, a player Manchester United were potentially going to sell in the summer. Um, ends up being their, their saviour because he didn't hear or, or didn't listen to his manager. But I, I felt so gutted for Brentford. They're in this really difficult situation at the moment where I think by my count, they've got nine key players unavailable, either through injury or in Ivan Tony's case, suspension. And a lot of them are, are long term. You know, Rico Henry's out for the season. Mikkel Damsgaard's just had keyhole surgery. Um, Josh De Silva's, I think, tore his hamstring. It's a really tricky situation. They've not won since the second weekend of the season against Fulham. Mm. And Fulham were down to 10 men. Not for, won since the second weekend of the season. Yes, yeah, so they've not won in two months now. Mm. Uh, and Fulham were down to 10 men in that game. So this really felt like a bit of a backs to the wall job well done they're going to get three points this is going to be a bit of a not necessarily a turning point in the season mm. but a slightly unexpected result given the circumstances and I mean I think Thomas Frank summed it up best after the game he said if it had finished 1-1 I would have been devastated so to then go on to lose I asked him what do you kind of say to the players in the dressing room after a result like that and he said there wasn't really too much I could say no one would have listened they were just too caught up in the moment and emotional so a really disappointing result. I think it was a very good performance, especially in the first half. Some of Man United's tactics were, were quite bewildering. Right. Um, Onana just seemed to be hitting it long to, to Hoyland every time and Brentford were playing Do you think he was told, given some of the problems he'd had, Potent passing it more? Potentially, but obviously Evans and Maguire were the, the starting centre-backs. Mm. And um, they were trying to pass out from the back and Mbuma, would, Mbuma and Avissa would then chase them down. So it just wasn't quite working. And then in the second half, as I said, as Brentford just began to tire, uh, Manchester United went for it. So Man United had 16 shots in the 90 minutes of normal time and four were on target. Right. In the seven minutes of added time, they had five shots, four were on target. And I think it was an XG of 0.73. So in those seven minutes of extra time, right. added time, stoppage time, whatever you want to call it these yeah. days, they produced way more chances than they had in the rest of the, the, the game, which just kind of sums up how much... Brentford were just knackered and just couldn't, couldn't get over the line. All right, and also sums up the incredible impact of Scott McTominay, who came on in the 87th minute, had four touches on the pitch, and in the, with those, scored two goals. You talked about the the, the post-game interview, but it was... I'm not a Man United fan myself, but I, I can imagine how that must have... That must have been like music to, to supporters, to hear him speak in those terms, to speak of the kind of legacy which he referenced, to hear the, the shout out to Kath on reception as well. And also, so, so Alex Ferguson's wife, mm. Kathy, passed away and they were all wearing black armbands. So I also recognise that that was a very special moment for that stadium. And, you know, there was a bit of a tribute before the game to, to Kathy. And, um, you know, my, our colleagues, Laurie and um, Dan Sheldon, were, were sat behind me and they said, I've not heard a roar at Old Trafford quite like that in, in some time. And even Thomas Frank said, you know, I'm gutted for me, but I recognise that if Man United had lost that game and Ten Hag had come into that press conference, then there would have been some really serious questions asked. And, and like you said, McTominay, to, to tie it back to, to Beckham after a certain documentary was released, yeah. it was... Um, well, he showed his own class of 92 in a, there you go. In a, in a sense. <laughs> you know, 92.47. <laughs> oh, do you still um, have to bring it up? <laughs> but okay, so the last last what five minutes were good, Daniel. How long will the glow of that last before the thoughts of the previous ninety two 
return to the minds of United supporters and Ten Hag, presumably. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, other than the result in itself, it's it's basically meaningless. I mean, the, the winning goal is assisted by Harry Maguire, who they desperately tried to sell this summer and is probably sixth choice centre-back. Scored by McTominay, who they tried to sell this summer. Andrea Onana still looks like a goalkeeper who can pass the ball pretty well, but can't save shots or anything but straight at him. Um, Casemiro is in... You know, I didn't watch much of him at Porto, but I guess he's in the worst form of his career because he was hauled off at half-time. He looks really lethargic off the ball. Uh, Mason Mount seems to be kind of answers the question that just about the only question that no one was an- asking in the summer. It's it's not really working at all. And and the last time they had one of these comeback victories, he said incredibly bitterly, was against Forest when they were they were two 0 down and one three two, and it didn't spark anything. They then lost three games on the spin, conceding ten goals. So. It doesn't suggest to me that there's any sort of strategy behind this other than, yeah, Brentford were tired and sat deep and Manchester United eventually made that pay. If they then go and win the next five games, then, mm. you know, I look silly. But I still don't really see any composed or cohesive strategy behind any of this. And they'll win games like this and then they'll lose games and that's not good enough for where they should be. Okay. They're currently 10th. Uh, as for Brentford, after that hideous finale, they lie 15th. Only three points off uh, the bottom four. I was just quickly going to say, it felt quite um, felt like a significant moment when Rashford came off on around mm. sixty-five minutes as well, and Garnacho replaced him, and there was a you know big cheer when when Garnacho came on, and he had a you know a really big role in that first goal. Look, it's not it's not a secret that Rashford's in in a poor poor run of form at the moment, but Christopher Ayer, who was kind of tasked with coming up against Rashford I thought probably had the the best game since he joined Brentford two and a half years ago I thought he locked down Rashford superbly and then was very good at dragging Rashford the other way and and running past him so the fact that Rashford came off when when United were looking for a winner feels it's not an ominous sign but it just kind of says as Daniel was alluding to that the result is kind of meaningless in a way because all of those problems still exist. You know, your your top scorer from last season is still way out of sorts and just doesn't quite look in sync. Mm, indeed. All right. Uh, just returning to Brentford's position, uh, as I say, three points off the well, bottom three, I should say, rather than but bottom four, because that's the significant. Uh, that's the significant little portion of the table. But the next game for the Bees is going to be against Burnley, who are one of those sides, who are the other team, like three points behind them. Burnley, who also this weekend took the lead against a dysfunctional big club uh, and also ended up losing. In this case, it was Chelsea, who beat them 4-1. That's back-to-back wins in the Premier League for Pochettino's side. And vindication for one Raheem Sterling dropped by Pochettino last weekend, dropped by Gareth Southgate midweek in his England call-up and storming back here by setting up the first two goals, scoring the third and contributing to Nicholas Jackson's fourth as well. It's been a bit of a roller coaster start to the season for Sterling, hasn't it? I mean, I don't think there was huge expectation he was going to play a huge part under Pochettino. But in the very early weeks of the season where so little was going right for Chelsea, Sterling was like head and shoulders their best player. Like, like he was performing really well. And, and yeah, to, to suddenly then be dropped and to still not get back in the England team, it did feel like things might unravel a bit. But yeah, I mean, I think between him and Palmer, they really did the business for Chelsea in that game. And Burnley, I, I just feel like, I mean, I'm sure Daniel will have uh, strong opinions on this. 
But I, I feel like they've lost so much of what made them difficult to play against. And that's maybe the third time, fourth time this season they've played against one of the big sides and just been incredibly easy to kind of cut through. It doesn't really feel like they're making great progress. I know they won at Luton last week. Hmm. They are only the fifth team in English top flight history, so not just Premier League, but like ever, to lose their first five home games in a season. Only the fifth side. When um, Thomas Frank went on Monday Night Football a couple of weeks ago, I think he was asked about um, how promoted clubs should approach the Premier League. And he said, Whatever, who, whoever the manager is has to stick with what they believe hmm. the right principles are. Hmm. And I think he was asked to directly talk about Vincent Company's approach at Burnley. And I think people forget because Brentford over the last couple of years have been so direct and really hurt Manchester City, Liverpool, etc. With Reyes long balls up to, to Ivan Tony, that they were a very fluid football team in, in the championship. They're really good fun to watch, but they adapted and, and tweaked their style and knew they had to be compact and, and tight at the back and they couldn't necessarily play pretty football all the time. Whereas it feels like companies really doubled down on his values. And there's not to say that's not the right thing to do, but at the moment, it's <laughs> it's not working out for him at all, I mean, like all, you said. All those home games have been against, if we're being generous to Manchester United, all those home games have been against <laughs> decent sides. They played Man City, Spurs, Villa, Manchester United and now Chelsea. So it's, you know, it, it's not, I mean, they may well have not expected to win any of those games anyway. But I, yeah, you're right. I think it's quite an ominous start to a season when we're this far in and they've still not got a point at home. Mm. All right. There are other sides out there who might just prove to be worse come season's end. We'll talk about some of the candidates for that next. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is the Totally Football Show, part of The Athletic Podcast Network. Bottom four all lost this weekend. That's Luton, as mentioned, Burnley, as we just talked about, Bournemouth as well, and Sheffield United. Three points now. I mean, Jay, you'd love to say that the bottom four are cut adrift, that three-point gap between Brentford and Wolves and Everton and, and, and the struggling teams below. Is that a significant amount? Are we beginning to see them drifting a, drifting away? I don't want to say it's, it's two plus one more, but that is what we thought at the start of the season. And that is, we've not seen enough to dissuade us, I think it's fair to say. Sheffield, I think Luton... Luton's problem was always going to be home form because they actually weren't particularly good last season at home in the Championship. I think they were like ninth in the Championship home table. They were really good away from home and that's really hard to replicate in the Premier League. Um, Burnley were really good at home and have played really good teams and, yeah, I agree, aren't defending particularly well. Sheffield United are the crisis club, no doubt. Um, their defensive record is, I mean, it's it's record-breakingly bad. Um, they've, they've faced 66 shots on target, which I think is 18 more than any other team, which is, I mean... In terms of shots per game phase, I think they're at like 22 and a bit, which is, again, that will break all Premier League records. It doesn't matter if Cameron Archer scores a few or if Gustavo Hamer chips in. You will be relegated by the end of April if you defend like that over a whole season. And you look at their transfer business over the summer, and I know some of it was done pretty late because of 
in inverted commas circumstances around the owner but they didn't really buy a centre back um, obviously sympathy goes out for Chris Basham who right. at 35 must be worried if he'll ever play competitively again because it's, it looked a horrible injury um, but you have to account for injuries you have to bring in players that you think are of the level required to stop your team having or facing 22 shots a game and that's not just the defenders that's the central midfield areas as well. They just look so easy to play against. Um, and and it's difficult to see how A, Paul Heckenbottom either survives or puts up with it for much longer. And B, there's not a sense that someone's going to come in and suddenly transform Sheffield United because you can't change the squad significantly till January. And there's doubts about the spending in January anyway. So, yeah, I think it gives me no pleasure to say in early October that we're we're quickly losing a Premier League team. But it does feel that way unless something... You know, miraculously changes. Mm. They got a miraculous route back into their clash Saturday afternoon away at Fulham when Anthony Robinson waved a a, a pretty inexplicable foot at a uh, a ball that was sailing past his goal and, and and stuck it in. Like before that game, Fulham had scored the joint fewest goals in the Premier League, right? With five, and even they could have scored six right. on Saturday. They scored three, and one of them was really really unfortunate. And Wes Fodderingham, it's a kind of it's a knockout style long range <laughs> goal, but. Um, this is what happens. You run out of luck eventually if you give teams clear shots at goal and that's what they did repeatedly. Mm. Sheffield United are one of only four teams in English League football who haven't re- recorded a single victory so far this season. There's another one in, in the Premier League though and that's that's Bournemouth. You're concerned for uh, for the Sheffield United manager. What, what do you think about the uh, his opposite number of the vitality? Yeah, I mean, he said for the first time on Saturday a kind of... You know, I know things have to change because the pressure will be on. And they've had, a like Burnley, they've had a really horrible fixture list. They've not played a team in the bottom five. And I think they've played four of the top six currently. So they've had bad fixtures. But when you're a new manager, it's not like Vincent Company where there's a body of work to rely on. When you're a new manager, you need to hit the ground running with these things. And just the goals they're conceding, like trying to play out from the back, kind of Brighton style. And it really, you know, defenders falling over the ball and getting robbed. And um, I don't think Everton had scored, I think it's something like eight, it was the first time in over a year they'd scored, yeah. scored more than one goal in a match at Goodison. They got exactly. three in this game Saturday afternoon. Bournemouth, their penultimate place on three points. They've got a Gary O'Neill's Wolves after the break. Gary O'Neill, of course, who uh, they uh, removed to bring in Andoni Iola. What, what about Everton, though? Does this suggest that their trajectory is pointing in the right direction now? They've got really good attacking players. Uh, it's, Jack Harrison is an incredible low knee for the season until it gets made permanent. Dwight Muneer is always reliable for Sean Dice. James Garner's kind of progressed. You know, he's, I think I've described him as having like the most emphatic, like a new signing energy in the Premier League this season because he was injured for most of last under Dice. He's just become this like midfield tyro where he just presses people and wins the ball and then surges forward. I predict them to struggle this season, not go down. And then they suddenly signed three or four players. I don't know how they did that. Um, pending investigation, we'll find out in October. But um, they're all the better for it on the pitch. OK. They're still uh, down towards the wrong end in 16th place, of course. Everson level with Brentford. And uh, actually a point behind Wolves, because Wolves picked up that, that draw this afternoon, which I forgot to include in my, my numbers. There you go. There you go. Well, that was the last round of Premier League football before the international break, which is going to be ever so exciting. Uh, England are playing Italy. And what other delights await us, James? 
Uh, England are also playing Australia. Are and they? What, I'm sure, the, the football ashes. No, oh, the nice. football ashes is uh, Australia also playing New Zealand in, in England. They're coming to England I to play. I think they're playing it at, at the GTEC. Yeah. yeah, are they? So that's why I turned to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why why is Australia is New Zealand change? the ashes? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is uh, well, yeah, ashes on a, a broader scale? But why why is that match described as football's ashes? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, it seems like an obvious thing. Something to must have, have got burned Australia. some time yeah. ago. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. But I think it's quite a long-standing thing. It's not entirely new. I think it's been brought back now. Australia, New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is some history there. I mean, it's a derby, I guess. Yeah. 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 Mm. All right. Well, I look forward to that, James. Jay, what are you going to be up to over the international uh, I'm actually going to uh, Paris on Thursday. Brilliant. For, for a few days. Oh. Well, you say brilliant, but my, my stepdad texted me about the, uh, the bed bug infestation. Oh, yeah. And uh, said next time I visit, I'm not allowed to, uh, to go inside the house. So there oh. you go. As you can tell, my, my stepdad's got a great sense of humour. Oh, so, uh, <laughs> nice. nice. No nothing matter, though, the French bedbug uh, outbreak. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Daniel, what are your plans? Uh, I'm using up the rest of my annual leave to go to the Isles of Scilly. So that will be lovely. Excellent. Well, I hope the weather stays clement for you. Thank you so much for making it back in time to talk to us this evening. James, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. And Jay as well. My absolute pleasure. It's been magnificent. Thanks also to James McNicholas, who took time out from celebrating in the pub outside the Emirates to tell us all about what took place inside. And thank you, listener, for joining this Producer Charlie production and making us your Sunday podcast of choice. We'll be back on Tuesday, as I mentioned, with the Euro show, and then on Thursday to talk about Australia, New Zealand, and so much more in an international Toadie Football show. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Discover bonus video content by searching for the Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.